Greetings to the PATH family. Our slogan at the PATH is meeting you where you are. We invite you to follow, share, and check us out on social media. You may connect with us at any time, anywhere. On Facebook at The Path Church or Instagram and Twitter at Join the Path. Without further delay, enjoy this week's sermon. All right, so if you want a deeper dive on the stuff that we talk about today, a lot of things we talk about today are going to be, they're coming from looking at the Bible in a different way. We're going to talk about um, the book before I'm done, later today and all that stuff. A lot of what we do is to look, through the, look at the Bible through an Eastern lens, the Eastern lens that it's written from. The Bible's not written from the typical Western lens that we're familiar with. It's written from an Eastern lens, and the Eastern world is different. It's written from Eastern authors, Jewish authors to a Jewish audience in a Jewish world, making Jewish assumptions, and all those things are there. So we talk about that in episode zero, and then this uh, message I'm going to do today is actually episode one of the podcast. It's going to sound a little differently than it will today, but if you want to go back and listen to it again and maybe catch the little details that I don't share here today, you can get those uh, right there, episode zero and episode one of the Bema podcast. But let's start here. Say Bereshit, bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Bereshit bara Elohim. The word Elohim is that word right there. Uh, it's an interesting word. We could talk for about 20 minutes about that, but we won't. Here's what's interesting at the beginning of the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void. Say tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu, we, we translate it wild and waste. We translate it a lot of different ways. The Hebrew concept would be if you put nothing in a blender and hit whip, that's tohu vavohu. If you're thinking, but you put nothing in the blender, exactly. It's chaotic nothingness. It's not just nothingness, it's chaotic nothingness. And so the earth was tohu vavohu, and the spirit of God say ruach. Yeah, some of you got the phlegm going, I like that. Everywhere else I go, everybody says ruach. It's ruach, and you guys were already there. Ruach, the spirit, the breath, the wind. It's one of the few words that both in the Greek and in the Hebrew, this hardly ever happens, the word pneuma in the Greek or ruach in the Hebrew, spirit, breath, wind, the same three words interchangeably. So you have this breath, you have this wind, you have the spirit of God hovering over the deep. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the spirit of God hovered over, the word for hovered, it's the word merahephet, say merahephet. There is a dove in Israel. I see this almost every time I go over, and I usually try to catch it, and everybody can't figure out why I'm pointing at a bird and screaming. But there's a, there's a species of dove that, that it's, it's like a hummingbird, but its wings aren't moving as fast. The dove is just sitting there, just like, just still, not moving. And its wings are moving at a normal, and it just sits and hovers. And perfect. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. And God said... And so very in the beginning of this story, you have God, Elohim, who shows up as creator, he shows up as spirit, and he shows up as word. Now, I know that that, like, ooh, as Christians, we go, <laughs> which is good. We probably don't want to jump too far ahead too early in the story, but it's worth pointing out that, like, yes. So you have creator, and you have spirit, and you have word right at the very beginning 
of the story. And God said, let there be light. And it was so. God created the light to govern the day and the darkness to govern the night. And God saw that it was good. It was evening and it was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a, a firmament of vaults in the sky separating the waters above from the waters below. And it was so. God created the vault and called it the, the expanse. He called the expanse the sky. And it separated the waters above and the waters below. And it was evening and it was morning the second day. And God said, let there be dry land separated from the seas. And it was so. God gathered the land into one, the dry ground into one place, and he called that land, and he called the gathered waters seas. And then God said, let the land, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation according to its kind, trees with seed in it according to its kind, and let them reproduce. And God saw that it was good, and it was evening, and it was morning the third day. And God said, let there be uh, heavenly bodies in that expanse, in that vault, to govern the days, the year, the months, the years, and the seasons. And, God, and it was so. God created the greater light to govern the, the, the day. He called this the sun. God made the lesser light to govern the night. He called this the moon. And God also made the stars. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening and it was morning the fourth day, and then God said, let the sky be teemed with feathered and winged creatures, and let them reproduce according to their kind, and let the sea be teeming with finned and scaled creatures, and let them reproduce according to their kind, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, and it was evening, and it was morning the fifth day, and then God said, well, let the, let the land be filled with, with with beasts on the earth, both livestock and beasts that crawl along in their belly and, and other beasts of the, of the earth, and let them reproduce according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God says, let us make man in our image, in the image of God. Let us create man. And so he creates mankind, humankind. And at the end of this story, we're told that God rests. That when he takes a look I should say, and it was evening and it was morning the sixth day. And then we're told that when God looks out and surveys everything that he's made, he says that it's tov meod. Say tov meod. Tov is the word for good in the Hebrew. Meod is the word for very. It was very good when it's all done. After he creates mankind, after he looks out after over all of creation, God sees that it's tov meod. Uh, I was doing a mic check last night, and the sound guy, when we were all done, says, how do you say very good in Hebrew? And I panicked, because I never know how to say anything in Hebrew. And I went, wait, I know that one. <laughs> I said, tov meod, and I thought about this morning. God looks out, and he says, it's tov meod. Now, as we, as we as we looked at that story, as we read that story, some things probably jumped out at us if we were paying attention. First of all, there are these refrains. There's a cadence. Oh, I'm at the path this morning. You guys know about cadence. I just saw a bunch of people that knew a lot about cadence. I am a drummer, and in the world that I come from, the world that I come from, I'm the only one that knows anything about rhythm. 
you guys know about cadence. This story, this story has a cadence to it. There's a rhythm. There's a beat to Genesis chapter 1. One of those cadences is this phrase, evening and morning. Evening and morning the first day. Evening and morning the second day. Evening and morning the third day. Evening and morning the fourth day. Evening and morning the fifth day. Evening and morning the sixth day. This phrase keeps coming around. Let's hang on to that as we think about this morning. There's another phrase that keeps showing up. You caught it all. You guys were like amening and humming whenever I said it. It was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. Did you notice that the second day doesn't say it was good? That's weird. We're about ready to talk about that on the Baymob podcast. About one or two episodes from now, I think, a couple weeks out maybe. Um, we're going to talk about, about that idea. There's no, it was good on the second day. Don't believe me. Check it. You know what the third day says? It was good twice. That's why Jewish weddings often happen on Tuesdays. Not kidding. Because the day is doubly blessed. Interesting. It was good. It was good. But that cadence keeps showing up in the story. That it's like that bass. It's like that bass drum beat. It just keeps wanting to tell you that this thing that we're reading about, it's good. It's good. It's good. And at the end of the story, just like at the end of "I Am the Friend of God," that drummer came back around and like had the and it was very. It was tov mayod, right? So there's this beat, there's this cadence at the, all throughout the story. And then you'll notice that this whole story seems to have this rhythm to it. It starts with nothingness, the story kind of ends with nothingness, and yet the whole story is about somethingness. Like the story starts with tohu vavohu, it ends with God resting and, and sabbathing, taking the first Shabbat, and yet the whole story is about creation. The entire story is about production. Right? So that's this. And, and so then you, so you kind of look at this and you're like, man, I feel like maybe this isn't a story. Like, Marty, you just explained Genesis chapter 1 as if it was like a song. As if it was like a like spoken word. Like, like poetry. Like you, you didn't talk about it like it was a, a historical lab report. You didn't talk about it like this is how creation happened. You didn't talk about it like, yeah, yeah, and I don't know how creation happened because I wasn't there. <laughs> but Genesis 1 doesn't feel like a story that's all that concerned about how it happened either. There seems to be this cadence, this rhythm, this beat to it, this more poetic approach to something. So you're like, but maybe I'm just crazy because I don't want to get that wrong. I don't want to miss the fact that creation happened in six literal days, 6,000 years ago. I don't want to get that wrong. So I just kind of, I go back and I look again. And I notice that there are seven days. And as I, as I look, I'm like, well, what's interesting is on the first three days, God doesn't actually create, when you look at the language, he separates. He separates light from darkness. He separates waters above from waters below. He separates land from sea. And then on the last three days, he fills things. He fills the things that he previously separated. Okay? So you have this interesting, there's this threeness. But do you remember that three showed up at the beginning of the story too? There was a threeness to the creator. 
Elohim was creator, spirit, word. Now there's threes, and there's threes. There's also sevens. Like if this is really a song, you would kind of expect this. It's like we're in three-seven time. Uh, do not ask me to play that as a drummer. I have no idea what I would do with three-seven time. But you get this sense, right? There's these threes and these sevens everywhere that you go. Threes and sevens, threes and sevens. In fact, I brought this with me because I always get these details wrong, so I'm going to read it off my notes. It was so occurs seven times in the story. And God saw occurs seven times. So if there are sections of three, and if there are sections of seven, you would also expect there to be sections of ten. Because three plus seven is ten. <laughs> and, you, and you think to yourself, well, that's just silly. Only you start to look and you realize the phrase to make occurs ten times in this poem. The phrase, according to their kinds, occurs ten times in the story. How about this? The, story, the, the phrase, and God said, occurs, three, uh, occurs ten times, three times in reference to people, seven times in reference to creatures. Or the phrase, let there be, occurs ten times, three times in reference to things in the heavens, seven times in reference to things on earth. There are threes, and there are sevens, and there are tens, and there are tens that are threes and sevens that are popping up all throughout the story. This story has a cadence and a beat. This story is trying to tell us something. And then we, we keep looking, we're like, well, wait a minute. Marty just said that there's first three days and the last three days. It's almost like the story has two halves. Like if you were to draw a line down the center of that story, it almost feels like, there's like, the, like the story could fold up on itself. In fact, Marty said that God filled what he previously separated. What, what, what does he mean by that? I mean the sun, moon, and stars are connected to the place of light and darkness. Or the birds and fish fill the skies and the waters and the beasts and humans are connected to the land. So God now fills in corresponding order what he's already separated in the first three days. So God does creation by separating and then filling. And all of this ends up creating a literary device that we are unfamiliar with because we think we know everything. And so we're always we're like, well, I know the Bible. We went to seminary. And they actually taught us about this in seminary, but it was like this class, and it was really boring, and nobody ever cared, so. But the Jewish world of Genesis would have caught this immediately as soon as they saw this. They're like, wait a minute, we have what's called a chiasm on our hands. A chiasm. What's a chiasm? A chiasm is a story that can be formed in two different ways, but it makes two halves, and the story, the story either mirrors each other like this, like you can fold it up on itself, or the story mirrors each other as if you can pick it up and lay it, but there's a mirroring component. It's an ABC-CBA, so that's like this. Or there's an ABC-ABC, which is like this. Genesis 1 happens to be both. I think I actually have this. Hold on. ABC-ABC is what we just looked at. Day 1 corresponds to day 4. Day 2 corresponds to day 5. Day 3 corresponds to day 6. ABC-ABC. Correct? However, if you, were, if you were to look at your, 
let's say an NIV uh, Bible that actually preserves the paragraphs of your text, you would notice that actually day one is a baby paragraph, day two is a mommy paragraph, day three is a daddy paragraph, day four is a daddy paragraph, day, these are the seminary terms, by the way, daddy paragraph. Thank you for laughing at that. That, that is a complete joke. This is my really like technical language that I use. Mommy, baby, daddy, daddy, mommy, baby. Now you're like, the creation of man kind of sticks out. And this would be like a whole other sermon. I won't even get to this today. But you have to, when, you, when you're examining, examining Genesis 1 as like a literary device, you have to take the creation of man and kind of pull it out and set it to the side because the chiasm functions without it. Right? It's almost like the creation of man is something that God wants you to be like, hey, I want you to notice that this thing that we're talking about here, the creation of man, sticks out. It pops out. It's like this thing that you can obviously see the literary device when you're looking at it, and yet the whole story seems to be about you and me. Okay? But Genesis 1 is, let's go back. It's an ABC, ABC, day one, day four, day two, day five, day three, day six. It's also a ABC, DCBA chiasm. It's both in one, which if your head is exploding, it probably should, because that is crazy. That's crazy. It's almost like the authors had help. So a chiasm can look like this. It could look like daddy, mommy, baby, baby, mommy, daddy. Genesis 1 happens to look like this. Baby, mommy, daddy, daddy, mommy, baby. If I totally confuse everybody with a daddy, mommy, baby, are you following me? There's a big paragraph, a medium paragraph, and a small paragraph. Okay? It starts with, day one is God separated the light from the darkness. The light he called day, the darkness he called night. God saw that it was good. That's a baby paragraph. Day two is a little bit longer. It talks about separating the waters above and waters below, creating the vans, putting the sky in it. That's a little bit bigger of a paragraph. Day three, he does land, and it's a, it's a bigger paragraph. So day one is like this, day two is like this, day three is like this, day four is like this, day five is like this, day six would be like this if man wasn't there. Okay? It's almost like the author's trying to say, most stories would want to make you just a beast of the field. Like you're just a beast. Don't worry, that's episode two if you keep listening. Okay. Now, once a Jewish person notices that we have a chiasm, this is a big deal. Not just because, like, oh, cool, the story has a rhythm and a cadence to it, but that rhythm and cadence serves as a treasure map. Because once you realize there's a chiasm there, you become aware that the author has buried a treasure in the story. That's how this literary device functions. Easterners love to teach stories with treasure hunts. Westerners love to write three-point sermons, with, and all the points start with the same letter. So here's my three-point sermon. All three points start with the letter P, aren't I brilliant? And so we tell you in the Western world, we write a blog post, and we highlight the sections. We, we, we create PowerPoints, and we put the... Western communication is trying to take something, boil it down, make it efficient and effective, and give you the information. That's what we're doing right now. Eastern communication, the world of the Bible says, that's a really junky way to learn. Like, there's a better way to learn. If I can get you to discover a truth on your own, well, you're going to learn that so much better than if I just tell you the truth. We know this as parents. 
Like I can tell my kid what to do, or I can get my kid to like discover something about life. Which lesson's going to stick more with us? The second, the Easterner knows this. So I can just tell you what you need to know in Genesis 1. It'd be a really short story. Or I tell you a story, and somewhere in there is a treasure hunt. I'm not talking about Bible code. I'm talking about objective literary science. Okay? So, so there's a treasure buried here. A chiasm will often have bookends. What were the bookends? You remember? Tohu vavohu, chaotic what? Nothingness. What does God do at the end of the story? Or nothing. So there's nothing on both ends of the story. It starts with nothing, it ends with nothing, and the story points towards a treasure buried at the middle, and it's probably going to relate on some level to the bookends. So whatever lies at the center of Genesis 1 probably is going to have a relationship to the idea of nothingness. So if you count the Hebrew words, again, you have to take out the creation of man, put it over to the side, and you count the Hebrew words, you get to the center word and it lands right where you would want it to land. Let's go back. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, I went back way too far. Come with me, come with, right there. Where do you want the center to be? Day four, day four. Well, sure enough, the center word in Genesis 1 lands right in the middle of day four. It ends up being this word right here. Say the word Moab. Moad is the word for, or Moadim in the plural. Say Moadim. Moadim is the seasons. Day four said, and God created heavenly bodies to govern the months, the years, and the seasons. Why is seasons the treasure buried in Genesis 1? Why is this the center word in the middle of the creation chiasm? Because seasons is also the word that we use for festivals, parties, celebrations. You know what else they call the festivals in the Jewish world? Sabbaths. They're days to take a break. They're days to cease in your regular rhythm of things and stop and remember that the story is good and throw a party to remember that. So you have a story that starts with nothing, it ends with nothing, and the center word is about those days where we kind of take nothing and turn it into a celebration. The seasons, the Sabbaths. You see, this is why in the Jewish world, Sabbath is such a big deal. It's the first story, and it's going to keep showing up all throughout the books of Moses and beyond. But this is, the, this is lesson number one. Why is this lesson number one? Where are they at, traditionally speaking, when they get the book of Genesis? Who is it that wrote the book of Genesis, traditionally? Moses. Where are they at when they get the book of Genesis, traditionally? At Mount Sinai. Right? They're in Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain, spends a bunch of time with God, comes down with Ten Commandments, breaks them, goes up, comes down, Ten Commandments, goes up again, gets Torah, comes back down. So they're at Mount Sinai. What did they just do 50 days before that? They just left Egypt in the story of the Passover. They walked through the Red Sea. So they come out of Egypt. What did they do when they were in Egypt? They produced, they were brick makers. This is what God always keeps saying. Remember that you are slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. 
You have a story and you know things that other people don't know. Remember that you were brick makers. This is what they're used to. They're used to making bricks. By the way, how many days a week do you have to make bricks when you're in Egypt? Seven. How long of the day do you, in case you're curious, seven. Seven days a week you make bricks in Egypt. How, 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 how long of a, of a day do you work? See, Egypt wanted you, Egypt wanted to tell you that your value and your worth comes from how many bricks you can produce. That's what Egypt, that's what the empire wanted you to know. And even if you're like, no, I want to fight that narrative. I know that's not true. Here's the problem. In Egypt, what happens if you don't produce bricks? They remove you from the equation. If they remove you from the equation, how helpful are you for your wife and children? See, there's a real reality that you're stuck with in Egypt where my value and my worth and my identity is tied to my production of how many bricks I can create. Okay? So now God says, here's the very first story I want to teach you. The very first story that I want to teach you is the story of creation. Seems like a brilliant place to start. And in that story, God weaves a message about how I feel about my creation. How I feel about my creation. And he says, the first thing I want you to know, the very first lesson, you, you, you catching this? The very first lesson of all the things, what, what's God going to teach us? Lesson number one, opening lesson, first sermon, first thing God wants to teach us. Your value and your worth does not come from what you produce. The first thing I want to teach you is Sabbath. I want to teach you how to stop working. I want to teach you how to stop producing. I want to teach you something about who you are. And so when you go back to these refrains, you remember these refrains. This refrain is weird, by the way. I don't know if you noticed it. It's backwards. We would always say morning and evening, that's a day. You start with the morning, you end with the evening, that's a day. But in the Jewish world, a day begins at sunset. My Sabbath ended yesterday when the sun went down. And Sunday began when the sun went down. Why is it evening and morning? Because there's a built-in reminder to the way that a Jewish day works. Like my day didn't start when I got up this morning. My day started when I went to bed last night. Because my identity is not tied to my production. I don't get up in the morning to be the person and then rest at the end because I've worked hard. I start with rest because God says, I just love you for you. Let's just start by you going to bed. And so there's an evening and a morning refrain because my identity starts with me not even being conscious. And I know this as a parent. I know this because I used to walk into my, my daughter's room when she was sleeping, my first child. And I used to just love to sit there and watch her sleep because I, I just love her. I was fascinated by her. And I used to just, and, I, and God feels the same. Of course he would. Why would we be any better, any better, better parents than God is God? God's like, I'd love to just sit and watch you just be you without you worrying about who you are or what you're not or what you are or what you produce or how you would. I just love to look at you and just love you. Like lesson number one is a lesson of belovedness. Or, or we could say it this way. You're a part of good creation. 
when God looks at creation, its fundamental identity is goodness. And the crazy part about this is Christian theology usually starts two chapters later in Genesis 3. We start with the brokenness of creation. We start with your sinfulness. But that is not your fundamental identity. Your goodness is. God didn't start the story in Genesis chapter 3. He started it in Genesis chapter 1. We're not going to ignore Genesis chapter 3, but we're going to get to Genesis chapter 3 when Genesis chapter 3 shows up, and that's after Genesis chapter 1. So there's this fundamental identity of goodness. I had a teacher once say, when you start the story in Genesis chapter 3, the story is about what you're not. But when you start the story in Genesis chapter 1, it's about what you are. When you start the story in Genesis chapter 3, it's about the removal of sin. But when you start the story in Genesis chapter 1, it's about the restoration of goodness. You see how this fundamentally changes things. When you start the story in Genesis chapter 3, it's about disembodied evacuations. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, all get out of here. But when you start the story in Genesis 1, it becomes about physical participation. There's something that we're a part of here in God's good creation, and you are a part of that good creation. There's not some total perfection and total goodness, but there is essential goodness. And that is your fundamental identity. This is what it might mean when we say that people are made in the image of God, to remember that all people are made in the image of God. What are we trying to communicate? We're trying to communicate that there's a fundamental identity to all of God's creation, that if you dig down far enough and get to its core fundamental identity, it's goodness. It may be distorted, it may be twisted, there might be a million things wrong with it, but at its core, in its created state, God says, it's tov meod. There is this creating and resting nature to the story. There's a life that we live, there's a physical participation, and yet there's an invitation to know how to stop creating so that you can just rest. Here's what's interesting. When God rests on the seventh day, does he rest because he's out of divine creativity units? Does he rest because he's tired? Does he rest because if he doesn't, he's going to be in trouble? No, he rests because everything that could possibly be done for creation has been done. There's nothing left. At the end of the seven days, there's nothing left for him to do, so he knows how to stop. I had a rabbi once teach me, you know, uh, let's say you take a look at the statue of, uh, the statue David, carved by Michelangelo. At some point, that's a hot topic right now. Nobody's laughing at that, never mind. I'm on Twitter way too much, apparently. So, so, so there's this, there's this, there's, you know about the David carved by Michelangelo, naked David, okay. At some point, you have to know when to stop chiseling. That was funnier than I intended it to be. If, but, but at some point, if Michelangelo just keeps chiseling, he ruins the statue. He has to know when to stop creating. What's the problem with cancer? How many of us have not been touched by cancer? All of us have. And yet, what is cancer if you talk to a doctor that's not me? But if you talk to somebody who knows about, well, cancer is cancer because it never stops creating. It just keeps creating, and that's what makes it so destructive. So the creator of the universe has to know when to stop creating. And so at the end of, did you notice that day seven's missing the refrain? 
It was evening and it was morning and the first day. It was evening and it was morning the second day. It was evening and it was morning the third day. And it was evening and it was morning the fourth day. It was evening and it was morning the fifth day. It was evening and morning the sixth day. And did you notice that there's no evening and morning the seventh day? Go check it if you don't believe me. There's no evening and morning on the seventh day. It's as if day seven has this ellipsis on the end of it. It's as if you get to day seven and God rests and the whole story just kind of goes, because the invitation, God says, is I need you to join me in trusting, trusting that creation is good. I need you to stop and join me in this space. Why does God stop and rest? God stops and rests because he just wants to enjoy creation. He just wants to be like, it's done. And now I'm just here to enjoy it. Come enjoy it with me. Come trust the goodness. What happens in the next story? We get tempted to believe that there's more to the story, that God was holding out on us, that he's not done, that there's something behind the curtain. But what did God do at, Genesis, at the end of Genesis 1? He just said, it's all, it's all here and it's all good. It's tov meod and I cannot wait to see what we do with this together. Come and join me in my rest, which is something the Bible continues to say all the way through your New Testament. God says, I want you to come and join me in my rest. The invitation to Shabbat doesn't end. It's always going where God says, I invite you to do what we say in the podcast. I invite you to trust the story. Trust the story of goodness. Trust the story of belovedness. Trust the story that says your value and your worth does not come from what you can produce and create and make. It comes from who you are as a part of God's created creation. Trust that story. When you don't trust that story, fear and insecurity will rule the day. Fear and insecurity that says, I'm not enough. I'm not beloved. What happens in the next story, Adam and Eve? What happens in the next story, Cain and Abel? It's one of my favorite stories, what happens in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain comes and Abel has a great offering and Cain doesn't. We're not even told why, because apparently it's not the point. The point is that sometimes we're going to have better days than others. And his brother has a great day and his day is like, eh. And he's worried that now he's going to lose some status with God. And God shows up and he's like, just trust the story. That's not his words, that's mine. But God says, just trust the story, Cain. Why are you upset? Why are you upset? Who cares that you had a bad day? Just do what's right next. If you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for, is, is for you. But you've you got to trust the story, Cain. If you don't trust the story, fear and insecurity leads to sin. I personally am a believer that sin is not the fundamental identity. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the fundamental aspect of human nature. Fear and insecurity is. Sin is the byproduct. Sin is what happens when we let fear and insecurity rule the day rather than trusting the story about love and goodness. So every morning I pray a prayer. In the, in, in the shower, I engage in a Jewish ritual cleansing called mikvah, and every morning I pray a prayer. And I say, God, cleanse my mind, my head, so that my thoughts would be your thoughts. I say, God, cleanse my mouth, that your words would be on my lips. God, I want you to cleanse my, my heart, and I want you to cleanse my hands, uh, that I would do the things you have for me, that the words that I type and I text today would be your words. I want you to cleanse my feet, that I would walk in your ways, that my halach, say halach, halach is walk, would be in your derek. Say derek. It's got that flummy derek. My halak would be, my walk would be in your ways that when you look today, my feet would be among the ones that you find in your path. But there is that prayer in the middle. It's almost like a chiasm. Where 
where there's a prayer and I say, God, cleanse my heart that my desires would be your desires, that I would want the things that you want, and I stole a line from Hudson Taylor. I say, God, at the, when you're done cleansing my heart today, I need you to take my heart and keep it and protect it. Because if I try to protect my heart today, I'm going to hurt other people. And so tr- that prayer is a prayer of trusting the story. God, trust the story today. And I know that you love me. As I start my day in the shower today, I know that you love me. But I'm going to forget that throughout the day. And I'm going to believe that if I don't protect myself, remind me, God, that you love me and that you've got my heart. And there have been days, not all of them, where I have caught myself and went, God's got my heart today. So I'm free to care for this person. I'm free to lay my life. I'm free to confess. I'm free to admit that I screwed up. I'm free to let somebody else step into leadership. I'm free to do whatever I need to do today because God's got my heart. And I don't have to prove in my fear and insecurity that I'm good enough because I was already good the day he made me. It's good. It's still good. I promise. Uh, let me pray. We're going we're gonna to head to the Lord's table. I can't think of a better place where we'll be reminded about the goodness of a story that we're invited to trust. Father God, we're thankful for this day. I'm thankful for this new community of friends. Thanks for bringing me here. Thanks for bringing us all here. Thanks for bringing us around a table today, a table where we're going to take some bread and some juice, and we're going to remind ourselves that no matter who we are, Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, we're all one in Christ Jesus, Paul said. Like, we're going to remind ourselves that as we take bread and juice, me too, we're going to remind ourselves that no matter who we are, how educated we are, what our socioeconomic, uh, what's in our bank account, any of that stuff, we come to a table and say, I need Jesus just as much as anybody else. And this table's also going to remind us of how you feel about creation. Like, you would not have come and laid down your life for us if you didn't believe in some fundamental beloved goodness and who we are. So God, we love you. Uh, we want to remember right now how you love us. Um, we know that this is how we know what love is, that you first loved us long before we ever loved you. Remind us of that today at the table. Remind us with the Eucharist. Remind us with the Lord's Supper. Um, and allow us, invite us compel us, beg us to trust the story this morning, that we could be set free. Uh, God, I just pray a prayer of thanksgiving for a baptism today, a reminder, a, a, a walking example, a model of somebody saying, I, I trust the story. So, God, we love you. Thanks for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. New sermons are uploaded each Monday morning. Simply search The Path Church Atlanta in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting service. Additionally, we greatly appreciate your feedback on iTunes. If you would like to learn more about The Path, we encourage you to visit www.thepath.church. We hope to fellowship with you soon.